The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning. And I don't know about you guys, but that song, Slow Me Down, that is a song that I need in my life. And I'm not good at just taking time to sit still with God. It's so easy to do, but I'm not very good at that. And so we're going to do something completely out of my comfort zone. We're going to have two minutes of silent prayer to start off our sermon today. And this is so outside of where I'm comfortable, but I also know it's so necessary. And in our hectic, busy world, we often don't take just two minutes to really transform our day. So... Calvin's going to hit the video. You're welcome to close your eyes and pray or to just kind of reflect on a beautiful stream of light that we're going to put on a video for you. But it's going to be two minutes timed, starting now. How many of you feel like after doing that, like you could maybe do that throughout the week? Take two minutes to just kind of reset, reflect. It changes your energy for the day, yet I, I almost never do this. And I knew I was going to teach this sermon, so I was really anxious in my closet and I was in a hurry and I was trying to figure out what to wear and I had to leave five minutes ago and I'm already five minutes late and I thought I could take a minute to just slow down. And I sat on my closet floor for two seconds and got back up. Because it's so hard to do 
but it really does make a difference. And I'm someone who's really easily distracted. I'm like, squirrel, shiny object. I get distracted very easy, and it's so easy to just get centered for a couple minutes, find your place. And I often have my best ideas in the shower. Anybody else? Like, all the best ideas come to you when you have nothing to write on. And I think that the reason we get good ideas in the shower is because we're finally still. We're with ourselves. We're bathing the bodies that we live in and participating in something that's actually really sacred when you think about washing yourself in the shower. And for me, I often get my ideas in the shower because I think that's the only time God can reach me. I'm too anxious and running around all day. He says, okay, this is the time. And so I would encourage you to take some time to really reflect. Um, at the nine o'clock sermon, we had one of my friends give a prayer, Noreen, and Noreen is a Muslim woman. And when Friday happened, when I woke up Friday morning and got distracted by that news, that there was a massacre in Christ Church, New Zealand. I actually have a cousin who lives in Christ Church, so immediately I thought of her. And then I heard it was at a mosque. And I went to the Center of Action and Contemplation, which is this spiritual website. And I love that name, Center of Action and Contemplation, because it tells you what to pray, what to contemplate on, but also what to do, action. And they had some advice on what you could do that Friday morning. And one of it was to reach out to your Muslim friends and remind them that you love them. And so I reached out to Noreen and three other friends. And I said, I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so sorry about what happened. I'm thinking of you this week. And Noreen invited me to her mosque yesterday. So I went to her mosque and I said, since I came to your mosque for the vigil, would you like to give a prayer in church? And she did at the nine o'clock. But I just was distracted all week and weekend since this event because it reminds me of this question that I think we all get asked as believers or as people of faith. The question that we get asked often is how can you believe in God when? And the when is always followed by something horrible. Have you ever heard a question like this? Like how can you believe in God when somebody can go in and kill 49 people at a mosque? How can you believe in God? Or they might say, how can you believe in God when church leadership is sexually abusing little boys? How can you believe in God? I don't know about you, but I've heard this question asked before and I never know exactly what to say. Sometimes I feel a need to defend myself or I think that they think I'm stupid for believing in God and I, I feel a need to explain myself. But the only answer that I can really come up with is that that's not my God. My God is not a God that participates in any of that. And in fact, I think that God does support extremism, but only one kind. 
And Martin Luther King had a quote. He said, Jesus was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. And that's the kind of extremist that our God supports. I had a professor once that said that Jesus is a radical for compassion. He, he will choose compassion every single time in a radical way. And so radical and ex- radicalism and extremism belongs when it's on the side of truth and peace and love and sacred and justice and all the words that we identify with in our religion. So what I, how I answer that question now is how can you believe in God when these horrible things are happen- happening? I just say that's not my God. But then the next question becomes, if that's not your God, if that's not your God, so what is it then? And this is the question that I don't like because I don't like talking about the devil or hell or demons. Like talking about that just makes me feel weird. I don't know why. When my husband and I were, so we have an annual event for our nonprofit. We have a gala. It's coming up on April 11th. But I work all year for this one day. And I was sitting next to my husband at our gala last year, or two years ago, sorry. And right before I was about to go on stage, he whispered to me, I just got a call from the Broncos. I have to move to Denver tomorrow. And I'm like, we have a house and dogs and like, we'll talk about this later. (laughs) And he did, he moved to Denver the next day and missed our golf outing on Monday. And I eventually moved out to Denver with him and I, I started going to school at the Iliff School of Theology at Denver University. And I kind of created this new beginning for me. I started to find things I liked. And my husband, two preseason games in, got injured and cut from the Broncos. So never even made it to the season. And he had all kinds of surgeries at the Stedman Clinic in Vail. He had his uh, rotator cut. I don't know the words for it, but he got that repaired and they cut off his bicep tendon, they reattached it to the outside of his shoulder, and it was a really painful couple weeks for him. And I remember being a caretaker for him and trying to keep up with my schoolwork at DU. And it was cold, and we were in this apartment with our dogs, and we didn't know where we should live, and our NFL life was over. And I remember getting coffee with a friend and just kind of venting to her. It was a classmate of mine. And I was saying, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with our lives, and I'm really starting to doubt myself. And she said, that's the devil. And I thought, this chick is weird. (laughs) I don't think we should hang out anymore. Um, I didn't like it. I was like, just listen to me. Don't tell me it's the devil. Now I feel weird, and the whole conversation's ruined. Because I don't like talking about the devil or hell or demons because I just think all that is weird. And honestly, hell really scared me when I was young. I've shared with some of you I had OCD and 
part of my OCD is called scrupulosity, so it was around religion. So you can imagine a little kid with OCD about religion and how their relationship was with hell. I was constantly afraid of hell when I was young. So I just don't really go there in my mind. And I was sitting in class, I'm auditing a class right now at Rice University from 6.15 to 9.30, so it's a long class. It's on Monday nights. It's on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's given by Dr. Matthias Henze, who's a Hebrew scholar at Rice University. And I studied under him when I did my master's before, so I'm just a big fan of his. I show up at his classes. I think he's like, not you again. I, I literally stalk him. When he wrote a book, I threw him a book launch. Um, poor guy, cannot get away from me. But I was sitting in class, kind of nodding off, because it was nine o'clock, and I'd already been in class two and a half hours, and it's Monday night, so you're just kind of tired anyways. And he said something that immediately got my attention. He said, never once in the Bible does Jesus make a demon disappear. He only casts them out. Never once does he make a demon disappear. And when he said that, I just kind of woke up. And I thought, that's the answer. When people ask me, why do bad things happen? I'm just going to say, never once does Jesus make a demon disappear. It exists in the world. Evil exists in the world. Jesus wasn't able to make them disappear. He could just cast them out. He, in, in the same class, we went over the book of Jubilees. And the book of Jubilees is a pseudopigrapha book, which means that it's a book that didn't make it into our Bible. It did make it into the Jewish Ethiopian Bible. So it is in a Bible somewhere in the world. But in our, the voice, we, we read the voice at Ecclesia, in the voice, it does not include the book of Jubilees. But in the book of Jubilees, there's a story, it's a cute little story about Noah and his grandkids. Are there any grandfathers in here? Raise your hand. You know how much you love those grandkids, right? So Noah had some demons messing with his grandchildren in the book of Jubilees. And he tried to negotiate, there's a dog in here. <laughs> Sorry, um, I love, we'll talk later. Um, so, so Noah was trying to negotiate with God to get these demons, see I get distracted easily. Um, so, no, so it's not a squirrel. Um, Noah was trying to negotiate with God to get the demons to stop messing with his grandkids. And the head demon in Jewish literature is mystemia. And mis, is it mystemia? Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Yep, it's mystema. So mystema and God negotiated. And God was saying, hey demons, can you please leave? And mystema said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's negotiate a deal here. And what they settled on was that 90% of the demons would leave the world after the flood, but 10% would stay. And that this is a story in the book of Jubilees. And as my professor tells this story, it was presented at a big conference by a scholar that had a child that was severely disabled. And he said, you could just feel a pin drop in the room when he shared this story. Because everybody in the room knew what it meant to that person that 10% of the, 
of evil and unfairness and injustice was still gonna exist in the world. And so there's nothing we can do that these, this evil exists, but we can combat it with good, and that's what Jesus does. And there's one story, it's particularly weird, and I love it. It's Matthew 8, 28. And it's a story about Jesus where he casts demons into pigs. Spoiler alert. So it reads, eventually Jesus came to the other side of the sea, to the region of Gadarenes. There, two men who lived near the tombs and were possessed by demons came out to the seaside and met Jesus. They were flailing about so violent that they obstructed the path of anyone who came their way. The demons screaming at Jesus, why are you here? Have you come to torture us even before the judgment day, O son of God? A ways off, though still visible, was a large herd of pigs eating. The demon said, if you cast us out to the bodies of these two men, do send us into that herd of pigs. Now, I think that line, 31, is so fascinating because it tells us a couple important things. One thing it tells us is that Jesus and truth and goodness and peace have authority over these demons. The demons don't go to Jesus and say, okay, who's gonna stay here? Let's fight it out. They say, that's Jesus, we have to leave. And then they raise their hand and say, can we please go live in the pigs? Jesus said, very well then, go. And the demons flew out of the bodies of the two flailing men. They set upon the pigs and every last pig rushed over a steep bank into the sea and drowned. The pig herders, totally undone as you can imagine, took off. They headed straight for town where they told everyone what they'd just seen, even about the demon-possessed men. And so the whole town came out to see Jesus for themselves. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their area. So you can imagine, this story is a weird story. There are some demons and some men. Jesus comes, the demons recognize Jesus. That's important. Supernatural powers recognize each other. They say, we can't be here if Jesus is here. And then they request to go live in a pig. And then all the pigs that are demonized go into the water and drown themselves. It's a weird story. But it also tells us that demons are embodied. Because the demons didn't request to just get out of the bodies. They asked to go to the pigs. And so we use this language like, especially in addiction programs, we use this language like we're battling demons. And the reason that we still use this language today is because demons have to be embodied in the Bible. And that story makes it clear. Right now, we're in a season of Lent. And I didn't know this until seminary, which is actually pretty embarrassing considering I was pretty involved in church life growing up. But did you know that like Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same stories? I didn't, I used to not know that. It was so enlightening to me. So when we want to read about Jesus in the desert, you have three choices and they're all the same story, but a little bit different. And the Luke story is the one I picked. And I'll tell you why I picked it later, but we're going to read about Jesus's encounter with the devil in the desert. 
So when Jesus returned from the Jordan River, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him away from the cities and towns and out into the desert. For 40 days, the Spirit led him from place to place in the desert. And while there, the devil tempted Jesus. Jesus was fasting, eating nothing during this time. And at the end, he was terribly hungry. At that point, the devil came to him. The devil said, since you're the son of God, you don't need to be hungry. Just tell this stone to transform itself into bread. And Jesus said, it is written in the Hebrew scriptures, people need more than bread to live. Then the devil gave Jesus a vision. It was as if he had traveled around the world in an instant and saw all the kingdoms of the world at once. The devil said, all these kingdoms, all their glory, I'll give to you. They're mine to give because this whole world has been handed over to me. If you just worship me, then everything you see will all be yours, all yours. Jesus said, get out of my face, Satan. The Hebrew scriptures say, worship and serve the eternal one, your God, only him and nobody else. Then the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and he transported Jesus to stand upon the pinnacle of the temple. Since you're the son of God, just jump, just throw yourself into the air. You keep quoting the Hebrew scriptures. They, they themselves say you will put his heavenly messengers in charge of you to keep you safe in every way. And they will hold you up in their hands so that you do not smash your foot against a stone. Jesus said, yes, but the Hebrew scriptures also say you will not presume on God. You will not test the Lord, the one true God. The devil had no more temptations to offer that day. So we left Jesus preparing to return at some other opportune time. And so I think of Jesus fasting in this desert for 40 days. That would be hard if you weren't being tempted. I, um, there was a Islamic relief fundraiser here last year that my husband and I participated in. And as part of Ramadan, I tried to fast for one day to be in solidarity with my Muslim brothers and sisters. And I made it till three o'clock, <laughs> in which case I ate a loaf of bread. Um, but I can't imagine having the power to turn stones and turn objects to food after 39 days of being hungry and not using it. And the reason I chose Luke is because the lineage in Luke traces Jesus to be an ancestor of Adam. And a lot of scholars believe that this story is really about a second Adam. While Adam introduced the first story of humanity, Jesus comes with another story of what humanity can look like. And in this story, he doesn't listen to temptation. Where the Adam story in the garden, he so clearly gives in to temptation. So in many ways, some scholars and theologians think that this is symbolic for a new kind of humanity. For a humanity that chooses God over power, God over food. God, every time he's tempted, he chooses God. And it's the second Adam story rewritten in a way where temptation is never given into. 
And so I think that's a fascinating way to interpret that text. And I know when the devil in that text, at one point he offered Jesus all this land. He said, he gave him visions of all this land, all this kingdom and power can be yours if you just say yes. And how many times are we tempted in our lives between power and truth and we choose power? Or between, you could have a little bit more influence or a little better job, but it's gonna require you to give up some of your integrity and truth. And it's so easy not to choose God in those moments. I think the big lie that our culture lives with, not just American culture, but the lies that were fed in media all around the world is this lie. I think that's the lie that we're living in today. And that this is the temptation. It's that when you get more, your life is going to go like this. And as you accumulate more degrees and wealth and status and prestige and cars, that someday you're gonna be happy. You'll be happy after you lose five pounds, after you buy this product, after you do this thing, after you accumulate more. And the problem with that model is that that's not how the human heart is satisfied. And so we believe it and we never arrive. I know in one of my sermons I talked about my struggle with addiction, particularly to this prescription medication. Um, And at that point in my life, which was a low point in my life, On the outside, I looked really shiny and happy. And I had all the things that people want. I had a beautiful husband that I'm still married to. He was in the NFL. I had like a six pack at the time. (laughs) And it didn't make me happy. I was abusing a prescription medication. And I had all the things. I had money and a great husband and shiny hair and a six pack and I still wasn't happy because the lie that we're sold to every day isn't what makes us happy. And it's so hard for us not to believe that once we get more, we're gonna be happy. But I can tell you at the age of 24, when I had all my needs met and everything I wanted, I had never in my life been that miserable. And that's the year that my addiction was at its worst and I was going to the hospital and seeking help. And so I can tell you that this lie is one that we constantly live, and it's not the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived a perfect life. Did his, his life just progressively get better to comfort and happiness? No, it ended in crucifixion. And so I don't know where we get this story that happiness is on the other side of losing weight, on the other side of having what we want, but it's not a biblical story. And I think life is more circular because demons don't go away. Jesus never made a demon disappear. Jesus was confronted with the devil in the desert. He never made that devil disappear. And so there's a short video clip that we're gonna watch on the circular pattern of life that I think is more accurate than that linear one.
And so that analogy of the spiral staircase that's not linear, that's actually circular, um, I really needed that model as of recent in my life. So I had just given this sermon about me being an addict to this prescription medication here at Ecclesia. And I just told some of my best friends the week before about that time in my life because it's actually harder to tell things like that to people close to you that know, that know you well. But I didn't want them to find out from a podcast. So I'm like, I gotta tell people the truth now. And it had been five, six years, so I had some space from it, some distance from it. It wasn't an open wound in my life anymore. And so I gave this vulnerable sermon about my addiction story. And two weeks later, I got a sinus infection. And my husband also was congested with an infection. And I got prescribed an antibiotic, but also a decongestant. And I didn't know this about my brain, you guys, but I loved how that decongestant made me feel. And my husband didn't love it. And it felt unfair. It's an ingredient called pseudofedrin, and I just love it. And as soon as I took it, my brain was like, get more, get more. This is what you like. And I was embarrassed because I, I got a pack for seven days of this decongestant that did clear my sinuses. It worked. But I loved it, and I felt guilty for loving it, and I did not want those seven days to end. And I started thinking in my head about how I could get more, and it's regulated at Walgreens, so I thought maybe I can pretend like I can't get to Walgreens, and maybe my parents could pick some up, and I could make up a story about how I, why I can't go today, and they could get me more. And I felt so shameful as I'm having these thoughts. I was in so much shame. 
I just gave a sermon that I was past this on a linear model. This is my past. And now here I am again, like seeking something that I didn't even know I liked. I've never even heard of this. I didn't even know I liked it, but I did. And I recognized this weakness in myself. And I called my parents and I said, hey, if I ever ask you to go to Walgreens and get me these three medications, the answer is no. And I told my husband, I said, my sinuses have felt better, but I've still taken this pill an extra three days and I don't want it to become a problem. We need to go through all our medicine cabinets and make sure that anything with this ingredient is in the trash. And we raided our cupboards that night together and I was teary-eyed and mad. I'm a grown woman, I'm 30 years old. I just told everyone this was in my past. And here I am going through my medicine cabinet with my husband, looking for an ingredient on a box in case I start searching later. But then I thought of the spiral staircase. And I thought, I'm back to an old demon with new strength. Because this time, I called my parents and said, don't get it for me. I told my husband this is a problem. I threw things away. I didn't go open up a drawer in my house to go stash it away for a rainy day. And so that's the power of the spiral staircase is that when you get stronger from the climb, that you're able to tackle old problems differently. And Jesus was already at the top of the climb because he's Jesus. And in some ways, that's unfair. You're God. But he said no to every temptation. And we can use that spiral staircase in our life so that when we face old problems, we can overcome them because we have the strength, the kind of strength that's inside Jesus that chooses God every time in the face of temptation. And that's the story of Lent. It's a story about being in the desert, being tempted by the devil that doesn't go away. If you notice at the end of that scripture, it said, the devil said, I'll be back at another opportune time. A linear model of life would say, I'll never come back again. You're on your way up. But a circular model of life says, I'm going to come back. And we'll see how you handle me then. And if you're living in truth, in love, in peace, in justice, In compassion, when you circle back, you're going to have a new strength that's not from you. It can only come from him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.